When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT. Because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics podcast on The Times. I'm Matt Chorley. Now, for a podcast which focuses on trying to explain what is happening inside the Westminster bubble, it's perhaps no surprise that we normally focus on what is happening inside the Westminster bubble, but that isn't the full extent of politics. So I was delighted in this special episode to join Jen Williams, the politics editor of the Manchester Evening News, for a bus ride through Manchester, where we chat about, yes, Brexit, but also housing, devolution, the mayoralty, town centres and public transport. In particular buses. Everyone is suddenly talking about buses. You wait ages for a politician to talk about buses and then several come up, oh, you do your own joke. It's been exposed in the past. I'm a bit of a bus nut. And I confess that I like to make and to paint slightly inexact, very inexact, uh, models of buses with happy passengers inside. Now buses. They haven't been given the attention they deserve from politicians. That's what I think. But they, but they are still the backbone of, a, of the public transport, actually most of our country. Well now, you have a chancellor with a well-known family connection to buses. Right, Mum? And a PM who likes to paint them. What bus are we on? Uh, we're on the 140 Magic Bus <coughs> to Didsby. What makes it magic? It's cheap. Oh, okay. Yeah, it used to be a quid. Well, I think it might be two pounds actually. I think it's just, I think just, two yeah, pounds. just paid two pounds. Yeah, yeah. You have paid for me because I had no change <laughs> getting on the bus. According to Manchester Myth, and I don't actually know whether this is true, but everyone believes it to be true, the busiest bus route in Europe. And is that something that? Mancunians are proud of or find annoying? Well, I mean, this is this is kind of the only route in the city where the bus services work, really. Okay. Because it's saturated, because there's so many students on this route, there are all the services to provide them. Um, so it's kind of massively out of kilter with all the other 
bus routes everywhere else in Manchester. Um, and that is a bugbear for people, I think. Yeah, it's much cheaper, way more regular, and it runs all night. So uh, let's explain why um, we're on the bus. Uh, occasionally on the Red Box podcast, we have inhabitants of the Westminster bubble declaring what they believe to be what people <laughs> in the north think and are interested. I thought we're in Manchester for the Toy Party Conference. Let's actually get out of the Toy Party Conference. And the stu- you write great stuff for the Manchester Evening News. And so this seemed like a good opportunity to talk about the stuff that is actually of interest to people in the north, which is basically anywhere outside uh, North London. Yeah. So let's start with buses then. One of the striking things at the Tory conference, from the Prime Minister down, the number of politicians suddenly professing great interest in buses. Boris Johnson saying he loves buses. Yes. Um, what is the, what's, what's the deal with, why, why do you think politicians have suddenly turned on to buses? It's not like buses didn't exist before. You wait all these years for blah, 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 bus announcement. Yeah. <laughs> um, why is it? Uh, well, I mean, I suppose with Boris Johnson stuff, it's, it's, um, it's this kind of wider strategy to speak to the places that he needs to win in the election. So that's part of it. Um, we probably have quite high profile coverage around trains like people probably know that we write a lot about train stuff and we complain about train stuff but actually more people use buses here uh, and that will go for you know a, an awful lot of places outside of London but outside of London bus services since they were deregulated in the 80s uh, have essentially got worse and worse and worse they're extremely patchy uh, and they've been cut particularly under austerity and I think Boris Johnson has, has clearly kind of latched onto that but I mean in fairness it's also, I think, to do with him having been Mayor of London because I think he does have an understanding of how that bus, why, why it is that that bus network in London works and why it doesn't work everywhere else. He does also have a habit of writing things on the side of buses, which is a slightly different... Yeah, uh, which is a slightly different thing. And, and he had that thing where he, he went on about making ba- buses. Painting buses. Painting buses, yeah, exactly. Wine boxes, yeah. which we've all done of an evening. Yeah, exactly. Now, where does the bus issue overlap with devolution? Obviously, Manchester's got well, the new Metro Mayor's Andy Burnham. Yes. Who escaped from the Labour Party in Westminster. Yes. Um, does that all sort of lock together? Yes. So what, what, what is it that Andy Burnham want to do with buses? There was a bit of legislation passed in 2017 uh, called the uh, Bus Services Act, which allows people like Andy Burnham to uh, effectively uh, reform the bus network and do it one of two ways. He can either do it through a partnership with the bus companies, uh, which would mean he wouldn't have an awful lot of control over what they did, but it would probably be easier to get over the line and potentially a bit cheaper. Or he can do what he's decided he wants to do, which is go down the franchising route and essentially do it like London style. Um, But then you have to jump through an awful lot of legal hoops to do that. So the chances are, once he gets to that point, there's a good chance the bus companies will probably take him to court. Okay. So this has been playing out, well, I mean, he's up for re-election again in May, so it's been playing out for all of his term so far, really. it's, It's been quite a complicated process. But the Labour Party in Manchester, it was one of their big things about their devolution deal. It was the thing that they really felt that they got out of it, was that finally, they could sort out the bus network. It's what they've wanted since like 1986 or whenever it was deregulated, when it was proposed. And the fact that uh, Labour are likely to hold the mayoralty mm. 
in the long term presumably is why he's up for the fight even if the legal fight goes on way past the next May's elections yeah I mean it's interesting like talking to people kind of earlier on in the mayoralty you kind of got the sense that it probably wasn't one of his top priorities really um, and then there was a bit of pushback within the party saying actually this is a really big deal for us like among councillors uh, quite a few MPs as well saying like actually this really does it may be difficult and it may end up being expensive but this is surely this is the point of devolution and then I, and then it kind of over probably over the last kind of six months to a year it's kind of accelerated and, and now we're actually at the point where it, it could be about to happen do you think that that's because Andy Burnham was still a bit of a creature of the Westminster but I, mean, I know he always he tried to claim he was from outside the bubble despite him being a spad and yes. uh, a career politician and that sort of stuff yeah, I mean, um, certainly some people that you talk to in Labour locally would say yes, that that was part of it. I think also he did he did quite a kind of... He had a list of key pledges in his manifesto, and one of them was to get free bus passes to kids aged 16 to 18. And I think for the first half of his mayoral term, I think all of the energy was going into delivering that promise. Yeah. And then about halfway through, people started to say to him, hold on a minute, what about the whole yeah. big picture? Uh, and then things really did start to uh, move forward. And we're, we're at a point, I think next week, well, it might be later this week, actually, that they're going to go out to full consul public consultation saying we would like to go to a London-style system. So. What impact is the Greater Manchester Metro mayoralty having? Do people know who Andy Burnham is? Is he a th in the way that people in London know who Sadiq Khan is or Boris Johnson was is it a thing when somebody's sitting on the bus are they thinking oh Andy Burnham's doing a good, good job with the buses <laughs> I don't think we're I don't think we're at the London yeah. bit yet I don't think there's that recognition of the position in the same way but I think I think there is name recognition and I think that's one of the reasons that he won the he won the selection to be Labour candidate in the first place was that there was there was name recognition within the party and there was also a likelihood that there would be name recognition among the public as well there's also I think it helps there's name recognition with the media in London I know he obviously likes to distance himself from Westminster but it has also been an advantage because when he wants to get on Sky or on the State Programme or whatever the news desks in London they know who he is yeah that's definitely true I'd say of Andy Burnham in Manchester uh, in Greater Manchester uh, Andy Street in the West Midlands yeah because he had that sort of slight celebrity thing from John Lewis yeah and to a, a lesser extent but still to some extent Steve Rotherham in uh, Liverpool, in Liverpool. Yeah. because you're right he's, he's somebody whose name is known yeah 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 uh, which has put them ahead of and also I suppose if you are talking about essentially Birmingham Manchester and Liverpool they are yeah. the big cities so yeah, they, yeah. They, they seem like they came all I think, I think on I think there was name recognition for Andy Burnham I think probably most people would struggle to say exactly what it is that he's in charge of yeah so what else annoys you about <laughs> people like me uh, you don't annoy me Matt we're on a bus. We're on How a bus. We're having a, nice, we're having a nice time. What else are the things that you think national politics should be gripped by which aren't because we're creatures of the Westminster bubble? Um, I think to stick on a transport theme, I think the way... There's a huge, huge debate in the North and there's a huge lobby in the North. And I, and I, I mean, it isn't just a Northern thing, but I'm going to talk about it because it's shorthand, um, because it is a particular problem between sort of areas like Manchester, Leeds, North East, where transport infrastructure is concerned. And it is, you know, it's a decades old problem um, where we've been sort of consistently underfunded for a very, 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 very long time. And I think that's rising up the agenda, but what I tend to kind of notice is that it's sort of, 
kind of put in a box. So like, I don't know, every six months or so, there'll be something that happens that means that national media will kind of go, oh, oh yeah, transport's not very good up there, or, you know, that's been underfunded, or they're really annoyed, and then it goes away again. Yeah. Um, but actually, this is kind of the day-to-day -day lives of 16 million people, and they can't get around. I mean, like, you can, and it's only when people kind of come up from London, they try and get a train, or try and get from A to B, or trying to get to Leeds from Manchester, or whatever. And they go, God, this is awful, isn't it? Like, yes, it is. And this is what we're fighting against all the time because you can't, you can't. I mean, it's it's an argument. I think I get the sense actually that this new Conservative administration is starting to listen to more so than under Theresa May. But I mean, nothing really happened under Theresa May. I mean, you know. she's got no regrets apparently. <laughs> well, well, what what she, she got to regret? This I mean, week. <laughs> she said she got no regrets. She had a fantastic time. Did she? Yeah. She didn't look like she was having one. No, she really did. She didn't look like she was having one, and I'm not sure the rest of us. We definitely were having no, a fantastic no, time. Um, so what's happening? Is that is that a Brexit thing? Is that because uh, there's this genius Dominic Cummings strategy that if only they can flip every Labour lever into being a Tory voter, mm -hmm. they'll sweep into places they've never won before, and while also apparently holding on to. Uh, remaining seats in the south of England. I would, I would imagine. Surely they've written off some of those remaining seats in the south of England after some of the rhetoric that's been coming out. I don't know, but I mean, clearly the strategy is to try and win over some of these, uh, some of these northern seats. But I mean, sim as with the bosses, really, I do think that there is a kind of degree of uh, actual understanding on a policy level about why it is that this stuff needs to happen. If you look at some of the people around him, like Ed Lister, he was. GLA. Yeah. There was a kind of uh, pre-existing relationship-ish between Ed Lister and some of the people in Manchester Town, or like they were aware of each other, they dealt with each other yeah. in the past. So there is actually some cautious optimism in Greater Manchester that actually that whole agenda is understood and the, and the rationale for doing that kind of infrastructure uh, investment is, is understood because one of the big goals, probably, arguably the big goal of the people who were setting up the devolution in Greater Manchester, they don't want Greater Manchester to be like a net taker of subsidy from London. Like they want to be a contributor to the economy, don't want us to be relying on other people's taxes all the time. But until you've sorted that infrastructure out, you're not going to be able to get the investment, you're not going to be able to grow the economy, and that's always been their argument. So it's actually one that it, it makes sense to a Conservative ear yeah. if they're paying attention. And what chances are there of the Tories winning seats, traditionally Labour-held seats? Oh, well, I mean, I don't know. Where are the seats in your patch? Your guess is as good as mine whether they can do it. I mean, I think um, Bol Bolton, on our patch, it would be Bolton and Berry probably. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple of... There's a marginal uh, Tory seat in Bolton which they'll be looking to hold on to, and I imagine they probably will. And there's uh, at least one other seat in Bolton that they'll be looking to take, and two in Barry, Ivan Lewis's former seat in um, Barry South. Uh, and, well, former seat, because he's still MP, but he's an independent now. So, um, and Barry North, which was narrowly won by Labour uh, last time. So they'll be wanting, definitely yeah. wanting to take those. Um, but what, they'll, what, they'll need to be taking places with, they'll need more than that, you know, those are the marginals. And really. what, what, are those, what are those places like? Are they the, the sort of the left behind towns when feature writers from national newspapers go and they describe Chris Packets blowing along yeah. uh, streets and, you know, betting shops and shuttered shops and all that sort of stuff? Is, is that the sort of 
are the toys really making headway in those places where which would be unimaginable not that long ago? So I think I think somewhere like Burial Vault and the places that have always had hard conservative voters and have always moved around yeah. between Labour and Tory. You're probably talking more about your ones that are a bit off our patch, but places like Mansfield, uh, Morley, places like that. Um, I think that and yeah, I mean some of those towns that that your features writers are talking about they're Labour and I just cannot see them yeah. not being Labour but there are others where you think well maybe and it will be a test of this strategy uh, as to whether those Labour voters can kind of ditch the generational antipathy towards the Conservative Party It does feel a bit like uh, at the precise moment where the Tories are making this sort of audacious bid to Labour voters traditional long term you know working class lifelong generational Labour voters that precise moment is when the Labour Party is doing their best to annoy those people. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn's toxic on the doorstep in places. Like yeah. Absolutely. I mean, there was some. Uh, I keep quoting this polling, but I think it's really interesting. During Labour conference, Emily Thornberry briefed out some internal polling figures that they'd done. Um, and her point was that actually, if you look at our 2017 vote, forty uh, odd percent of it is lefters, and they're going to remain parties yeah. actually and not leave parties. But if you look at within their polling, if you look at the bit that was leaving for leave parties, it was going to Nigel Farage. Yeah. It wasn't going to the Conservatives. Yes. It's about five yeah, yeah. percent was going to the Conservatives. Well, that's not enough. And it's about two or three times that was going to. The yeah, well, yeah, party. exactly. It was kind of ten or twelve percent of the Brexit party. Yeah. They've had a sort of a conference tour and they've been going to different places and holding these rallies. It's interesting they've not come to your patch. I don't think they've been recently. They did, they did do a few things during the European elections, so though. In fact, they were in Bolton. So, yeah. yeah. When Dominic Cummings, the Prime Minister's whatever he is, Chief of Staff, advisor, um, when he says to journalists outside his house, you should get out of London and go and see what real people think. I think um, one of the things that most annoys me about the whole Brexit debate is the way that it's put entire geographical areas into a box. If you look at Greater Manchester, for example, you know, Manchester, if you're going to do it according to the majority of what people in a local authority did, 60% of the people in Manchester voted to remain. 
60% of the people in Rochdale next door voted to leave. But that's still 40% of people in Manchester who voted to leave and vice versa in Rochdale. And those uh, people just completely get written out of history. And that's just totally true in London. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're still 40% of people in London <laughs> exactly. voted, May, uh, voted leave. Voted leave, yeah. And you'd exactly. never believe that. You'd no. think that, uh, yeah. I mean, it's possible they have all left. It is driven, possible. Driven out by EU flag beret manufacturers. <laughs> Is it a big issue? Uh, yeah, of course it's a big issue. It's going to be a huge issue. On Politics Live yesterday, they had a clip from Bishop of Auckland and they spoke to some voters there. And there was a there was a guy that I thought summed it up quite neatly, really, and I thought summed up uh, really where the Tory party strategy is at, where he was saying, look, we are all worried about Brexit. We do all want it to get done. That's probably going to be the biggest thing. But after that, um, we're all frustrated that our areas have been underinvested in. We're really annoyed about just the state of where we live. And I think, you know, that, that's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. and I thought, like, to me, that kind of summed it up. But then it isn't part of the reason, and it, you know, there are loads of reasons why people voted leave. Mm. Part of, that is part of the reason why people voted leave. It was a sense of, oh, it's, I can't, it's that sort of, I can't quite put my finger on it, but things aren't quite as good as they could be. Yeah. And if we took back control, which is what yeah. the promise was, then maybe we could do something about that. Something something is holding us back or yes. something has happened which has meant it's not quite as good around here as it used to be. Yes, I think there was, during the local elections I did a piece that was talking about the rise of these little hyper-local parties Yeah. Um, uh, naming themselves after whatever their area is. So in Bolton, for example, there was Farmworth and Kersley first and they actually, <laughs> they actually talked about Fexit and Kexit yeah. at one point because they wanted to leave Bolton. They were very annoyed that they felt too far away from power in Bolton. Um, but actually, when you started talking to some of these little parties and talking to them about where the impetus had come from, there's obviously a kind of like Brexit backdrop to it. There's Brexit context and climate. But when you were talking to them, were talking, they were talking more about just the decline of their place and the decline of their place over quite a long period of time. And when I talked to my mum about the area I grew up in, North Wales, where she also grew up, she talks about how in her lifetime she's watched her area go downhill. She's watched, I mean, it can be as simple as the fact that post offices and police stations have gone. And I think in people's heads, there's a kind of general sense that in the space of less than a lifetime, as you say, places, life just isn't quite what it was. Communities are just not quite what they were. And that's kind of then been accelerated by a decade of austerity. And then you give everybody the opportunity to say, do you want to take back control? And of course people are going to go, well, yeah. It'd be interesting to see, and I don't really know when this happens, but whether at the moment it seems like people who felt that are still willing to give Brexit the benefit of the doubt. They think, well, Brexit hasn't happened yet. Mm. But my concern at always with the Brexit thing was we're going to leave mm. and we'll have spent however many years arguing about it. And unless the things that people were cross about are yes. addressed, they're going to be disappointed all over again. Absolutely. When they discover that their post office isn't going to reopen exactly. or their local pub, you know, that somebody doesn't suddenly start playing the piano in their pub anymore uh, because just because we've left the EU, then there's a risk that they get disappointed by politics all over again. I also think there's a kind of wider risk in what Boris Johnson's doing at the moment, going around promising pretty much everything to everybody. Yeah. Um, I think there's a, there's a longer-term issue there about um, trust in politics, and we think it's a, an all-time low now, but if the Prime Minister goes around promising all kinds of things to fix all of these things that people are frustrated about, and then it turns out the money isn't there, um, and if anything, trust is going to fall even even further. I think it's quite a kind of 
change of strategy. And I understand that he's kind of looking in the short term. He wants to win an election. But I find it, you know, it's hard when you work for a newspaper where you spend all your time campaigning for these things. And then the new prime minister pops up and says, you can have all of these things. And you're like, ah, where, how? How are you going to do that? Like, yes, of course we want those things. But are you really going to do all of those things? Well, how are you going to pay for it? And it is amazing. <laughs> the thing I really don't understand, and this will end up becoming a thing, is the Tory party didn't have much left, uh, you know, through the Theresa May years and all that. The one thing they could still cling to was sort of, we were good on the money. We were, fisc- yeah. you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. we were careful with the money. <laughs> they got the economy, great, you know, and people don't like austerity, but, uh, you know, unemp- unemployment's at a record low, employment's at a record high and all that stuff. And they could at least say, well, if all else fails, we looked after the money. And they just appeared to have just thrown that on the bonfire. At every opportunity, they announced more stuff. Sajid Javid's speech was really expensive again for the Treasury. Yes. Nobody noticed. It hasn't been on the front page of any newspaper. No. The spending beyond the increase in the national living wage, which is obviously for businesses rather than for well, I overheard somebody in the press hall yesterday saying that um, their new fiscal rule is that so long as it's less than John McDonnell, it's fine. <laughs> but then isn't the flip side of that that they can never beat Labour on spending because the because John McDonald will always promise to spend a pound more. Well, it is the flip side of that and it, it also explains why, you know, it, it's another thing about look at the kind of trashing of institutions thing that's been going on recently, which is quite, you know, for traditional kind of small C conservative voters, you know, that's kind of not what conservatives traditionally stand for. Conservatives traditionally stand for the rule of law and for institutions and for the green and blah, blah, blah. Then when you also add into that just profligate spending yeah. with like, you know, no care at all for how you're going to do the maths. Well, you kind of start to wonder what that's going to do in the long term to the Conservative base. Like, they're, they're kind of changing, they are changing the face of the party, but it's yes. an electoral strategy. When you come back to it again, it is a short-term electoral strategy, and isn't they, it? They, the, the gamble is that they, they think they keep everyone who voted for them in 2017 and can reach yes, out into totally. some others. And it is a gamble. And it's a gamble. And I yeah. suppose, you know, it's at least a strategy. Labour's strategy seems to be, well, some people really like Remain and some people really like Leave. So we'll try and p- appeal to everyone, but risk appealing to no to one. To nobody, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, um, well, yeah, <laughs> it's, this is not a podcast about Labour, but I mean, if they did have some eye-catching announcements at Labour conference, well, very few people would have heard about them. Yeah, no, it, was, it was an absolute <laughs> shocker. It so was. Let's talk about where are we now? Which bit of... So we are, we've just been through Studentland. We're sort of coming to the end of Studentland. So if you go down the uh, Wilmslow Road corridor outside of Manchester City Centre, that runs south to the suburbs around Didsbury, which is quite a wealthy area. Uh, and in between, you go past the universities, you go down the Curry Mile, and then you get to Fallowfield, which is where traditionally a lot of undergraduates have lived. And then um, people tend to move kind of further and further down this corridor. So as you get down, the houses get a bit more expensive. So you start off at the university, and then you go to the... Uh, yeah. yeah, uh, yeah it's a kind of quite a traditional sort of progression down, down Wilmslow Road, yeah. So, and then you get to Didsbury, which is kind of one of the, one of the more affluent suburbs in Manchester. So um, I suppose my final question is, uh, I know people have always tried to coax you down to London. <laughs> why did you stay in Manchester? I mean, that's, I can totally see why you stay in Manchester, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, not yeah, bloody yeah. London. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> well, yeah, that, I mean, that's one reason. Um, because, ah, oh, because I love it. Because I love it. And it's, there's so much to be written about here. There's so many stories to be told. Um, and if we weren't, 
there doing that and doing that in a kind of in a way that actually understood the place that we were writing about it's the same the same rationale as devolution isn't it decisions are taken better yeah. taken locally well you know stories are better told if you understand the communities that you're telling yeah. those stories about if we didn't do that well frankly you wouldn't see it on probably on the national news most of the time and you probably wouldn't hear it through very many other outlets and i think I mean, obviously, everyone kind of wrings their hands about uh, what digital has done to journalism and about the, in the invention of the internet and what it's done to print, which is true. But one thing it has allowed is that if you write a story which is powerful in Manchester, people in London can read it. People all over the country can yeah. read it. And previously, they were not going to pick up the Manchester Evening News. And I think that's been that's been quite a kind of that's been a, that aspect of it has been a force for good. I mean I, do, I mean, I definitely know that when I include a link to something you've written for the Manchester Evening News uh, in Red Box, it's often one of the most clicked on things. Is it really? Yeah, because no I think partly it's because uh, there's a novelty factor. Yeah. Because I link to, I don't know, The Telegraph and The Guardian and whatever all the time. Mm. Um, it's like, oh, yeah. it must be quite good if, it it's, if it's gone a bit out of the ordinary. But also I think people have been, you know, and we have got readers across the country. Yes, of all, course. Uh, yeah, of course. And also I think you're right that if there's a story which is big in Manchester, it probably resonates. The same thing is probably happening. I think there's a couple of other reasons that I kind of, I wouldn't want to go down to London as well. I think um, I think it's really, really important that this new devolved setup is um, treated to the same level of professional scrutiny that um, Sadiq or someone like that would be in London. I think that's really important because the only way that this is going to work is if it's properly held to account um, and they are pushed on detail and pushed on uh, lack of delivery when they don't deliver things etc 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 so that's that makes it even more of an imperative I think that there is strong political journalism in the places that have got devolution if you look at Scotland Scotland's got an entire uh, newspaper industry I mean they've got their own separate press yeah. and the Scottish lobby so I think it's really important that your Manchester's that your Liverpool's and that everywhere really has got that kind of level of um, political coverage but I think the other thing I really like about what I do, which I think I wouldn't be able to do in Westminster, is I like writing about the the political mechanics and dynamics of it. But you can also turn that into stuff which is more about what's happening on the ground, if you know what I mean. So yeah. it's not an either or. Yeah. Um, and I love that. I find that really satisfying because you can then turn what the politicians are doing into something that actually means something to people, and I really like that. How do you get to live in Manchester? I guess live in Manchester. I think I think the other thing as well is that there's a, there's a really serious kind of cultural thing around media stuff that I would never suggest that you know that the lobby doesn't need to be in the lobby. Of course, the lobby needs to be in the lobby. Like of course, there needs to be an army of people covering what Westminster is doing. That's absolutely essential. Um, but could media organisations think seriously about shifting other bits of journalism outside of London? Yeah. Yes, they could. I think it worked well with the BBC going to Media City. I think you can tell uh, just in terms of the slight shift in the sorts of things that are likely to now be covered on national BBC as a result of them being Salford because it's just it's a human thing if you're a journalist coming into work in the north you're going to notice the things that are going on in the north exactly right, yeah. you know um, and actually I think one of the big uh, negatives about the lobby now is the decline of the regional lobby mm, which is how I got yeah. in uh, well it was one of my favorite I got to start work for PA but then um, Spent four or five years working for the Western Morning News. Yes. At that time, there was what a dozen, fifteen, twenty yeah. people. Yeah. And the thing yeah. was, we would go to the Prime Minister's press conferences when they used to do them. Yes. And ask about this road project or yes. the Badger Cull or 
the spate of shootings in your city or whatever and that that puts it on the national agenda yes um, and you're a part of that sort of Westminster conversation and that, yeah that's just the, the economics of it's the economics of it I mean that hasn't been that is that kind of I suppose economic situation with local press is not one that has fully played out yet I don't think and I do you know certainly from our point of view I kind of see signs that maybe we're starting to turn a corner in terms of starting to create something which has got a real future online because we all know what the kind of direction of travel is for print um, but the thing is can you do that across the country for every community well that's something that's going to need to be to be thrashed out and resolved I think because all communities do need that they do need it and you're right if there's more power being developed out then you need yeah people like us to yeah to hold, ask, hold ask to difficult account, questions take the mick you yes. know and make sure yes, they're being exactly. uh, yeah, yeah that's basically right you yeah. ask the difficult questions and I'll take the mick yeah, yeah. that's it's a perfectly good uh, a perfectly good divvy um, Jen it's so good to speak to you I'm glad uh, I'm glad that we've done it on a bus uh, it's, it's been, been brilliant. an absolute pleasure Fabulous. thanks very much thank you